welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sills. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Wendy Lund. With over three decades of experience as a professor of health sciences, Wendy understands the physiology and pathophysiology of ease and disease. She became concerned over the educational gap that existed in preparing first responders to engage with trauma and tragedy and the growing numbers of death by suicide in vulnerable populations. Motivated to fill this gap, Wendy went back to school in her early 50s. Her graduation in 2017 from the University of Aberdeen makes her one of very few globally with an MSc in Mindfulness Studies. Her research built a case for why proactive strategies matter in training and sustaining a resilient mind. Grateful for her career in academia, she retired early to provide others with an understanding of how to create and cause your mental health, not simply avoid disease. She founded Wealth Management to fill a gap and inspire individuals and organizations to redefine wealth using evidence-based theory and strategies to create wellness and build stress tolerance. In this episode, Wendy talks about her definition of mindfulness, her decision to return to education and pursue a master's in mindfulness studies, why mindfulness and being present is important for first responders, steps to implement mindfulness into your daily practice, and the creation of her company Wealth Management and her free resource, Reach for Resiliency. Good afternoon, Wendy, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much for taking the time every day to chat to me. And I've got to say also thank you very much to Annette for introducing us and getting the setup. Yeah, uh, a lady I met just a couple of years ago, and she's just a good top shelf kind of gal. Definitely, definitely. Now, obviously, Wendy, me and you had the chance to chat a little bit, and you've got a really interesting story to tell. But for anyone who hasn't come across you in your work, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your career, like where you started out and where you're currently at? Right. So a lifelong career as a registered nurse, but really most of my life spent in front of the classroom as a full-time professor, mostly teaching the sciences to nursing students for about 14 years. And the last chunk of my career, 22, I spent teaching paramedics in their entire science program. Um, I finished off a career uh, three years ago. I retired early after completing a Master's of Science in Mindfulness Studies through the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, a pretty new and novel uh, graduate degree where I really investigated the experience of trauma in paramedics because I could really see over my academic career that we were doing an excellent job at training up first responders for the job but I became you know, increasingly curious and concerned about when do we teach these young folks how to deal with the trauma and the tragedy, the emotional sequelae that naturally comes. And so I went back and did this graduate degree. I thought I might just try my hand at launching a company. So three years ago, I launched Wealth Management, which is W-E-L-L-T-H, a bit of a play in the world of wealth, helping people to redefine what wealth is in their life but really looking to sell and teach people about proactive strategies to cultivate well-being, especially in the first responder community who lack all training related to how do you cultivate your mental well-being. Nice. That's uh, really interesting, Wendy. I'm looking forward to diving into this in a bit more detail. And like you say, it's just it's interesting how from a lot of the academic side of things is not that work put in at the front end for guys you know for what they could experience in that 
I saw it was a statistic the other day with regards to it was police officers, but obviously still first responders. Over like a 25-year career, they could expect to, um, you know, be present or attend over 800 critical incidents. You know, compared to what would be a general uh, public member who'd probably have five over that uh, 25-year period. So it's just like right, you're being exposed to so much of that. How do you set up the mental skills and resilience to prepare yourself for those incidents as well? And such a big demand of them as well. But um, I think it's, it's incredible that you're really looking into this and really pushing this through. But obviously, we know within the military and first responders and that now, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a big push around resiliency, mindfulness, and wellness. And there's a lot of different um, you know, breakdowns of it and what it actually means in that. But for someone who's done a postgraduate degree in that and studied this, what does mindfulness actually mean? Um, great question. I have to tell you, I really, 10 years ago when I was bringing mindfulness in, I really kind of was pioneering that into the Canadian EMS community. And there was a significant pushback, as you probably can imagine, and some of your listeners are probably like, mindfulness? Like, I'm, you know, in a paramilitary organization. We don't need that. A lot of old stigma that hold people back. And what I really think I bring to the table is you know, making mindfulness accessible, taking, you know, bringing a low hippy dippiness of the mindfulness that people think about as, and really bringing the science. So by definition, mindfulness very simply put is the ability to pay attention in this moment in a particular way, non-judgmentally, which sounds like, how can that possibly help you? But we know through the evidence that we're collecting about our minds, is we're only present about 48% of the time, which means the rest of our time in our minds, which we have this capacity with this prefrontal cortex to time travel so we can think about the past where depression lives as a GPS marker, or we worry about the future where anxiety resides. And so, or we're creatively thinking or lollygagging or just daydreaming all good things that the brain naturally does. So I don't want to shame anybody into feeling bad. It's just that these brains of ours have this amazing capacity to think abstractly, mm -hmm. but we need to cultivate it as if we were training a bicep to come back to this moment. Because usually the present moment, although pandemic was standing, the present moment is usually not as bad as what we're thinking about in terms of the past or the future. Mm -hmm. And so cultivating like, where am I right now in this moment? Can I just look around? And we do that as first responders, right? When you show up with your patients in high acuity calls, you are in essence moderating, bringing that patient back to this moment, getting the focus on you, having them take a breath, which in essence is, you know, pulling them into the present moment and keeping them to stay there so that they're not like, oh my God, am I going to die? What's going to happen to me? Um, and so I think, you know, first responders naturally are really good at cultivating present moment experiences. They just don't know that they're doing it. So I wanted to research that and see what first responders were doing in the moment. And so mindfulness is, can you cultivate that quality of awareness where you're not judging, which is really hard because again, the brain naturally judges. I like it. I don't like it. I don't care about it. Those are the mm -hmm. three global evaluations we have about everything. My hair, the weather, the pandemic. We all quickly and naturally judge. And don't shame yourself because, again, that's a natural 
quality of this organ of the brain. You don't shame your pancreas if you have you know, diabetes. You don't shame your heart if you have arterial sclerosis. The brain has these capacities and we need to learn to understand that that's their natural tendency. And then that sometimes relieves some of the guilt, like why can't I just be in this present moment? Just because we're, you know, we let these minds, like that puppy behind me that I'm raising, we let our minds jump around like a butterfly or a monkey mind. And we let it control our present moment experience versus cultivating the capacity you control where your attention goes. And when you can do that more often, you can come back to usually a center of groundedness or a sense of peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. That's a really great uh, breakdown of it, uh, Wendy. Now, obviously we know it's important and we definitely see there's an application with regards to the first responders, but how can people go about, you know, really getting into the mindfulness side of things um, from a scientific standpoint, as you say, and not so much the wishy-washy stuff, how can they really get into that and apply it to their, their own practice and day-to-day living? And, you know, where are some of the common pitfalls you see with people who do try and start implementing some mindfulness? Well, I think uh, modern day life makes us want to be expert at something right away. Yeah. And, you know, our big pharma company and the way we do medical pathways, we want instant fixes, changes in biometrics right away, or we've got a plan. The truth is mindfulness practice, I can't download that to you. I can tell you about the science, but it takes time. It's super subtle, which many of us are not patient about, mm-hmm. or we're like, I don't feel better right now. And so therefore it can't work. So we expect, I think, too much of mindfulness too soon without just understanding that there is no quick fix to cultivating the capacity of the brain in a way that builds equanimity. And I think the other thing people often mistake in mindfulness for, if they think it's hippy-dippy, but they also think mindfulness will make them forever happy or give them this cloak of invincibility that they'll be, you know, if I just nail this mindfulness, which is how I came into it, thinking I'm just going to get expert and then I'll never have another problem in my life. But the truth is life and problems will always be at your doorstep. Mindfulness is just allowing you another skill set in all of the tools of things you do, whether that's working out or going to yoga, eating well, sleeping, using your mind efficiently. The goal is to create equanimity, which is a big fancy word for peace. It's mm-hmm. not to cultivate joy and happiness. That is not the goal of mindfulness. It's to be able to engage efficiently and effectively with stress or trauma or tragedy in a way that doesn't, you know, decrease your mental well-being and allows you to understand that bad moments, bad feelings after a call, even a couple of bad weeks after a tragic call is normal. That We have a natural normal reaction to abnormal events so that we don't pathologize or shame ourselves for not feeling better. Like, why didn't I handle that call better? That's never bothered me before. And understanding the psychology of our brains and then how do we interrupt it and manage our emotional affect a little bit better when we engage with trauma and stress. Mm-hmm. As you clearly point out there, there's a key like processing period for everyone. Now different from person to person as well. Um, so people can't rush these things as well. What would be your guidance for people, like just the smallest step they could even take, you know, just to start down that mindfulness path, like right, 
you don't need to jump fully in, but just dip your toe in with this. Right. So the breath is commonly, so um, when I'm speaking to military and first responders, I'm always very careful to say, don't just jump into a closed eye meditation, which is contrary to what most mindfulness teachers will tell you, right? They'll, you'll join a group, you'll go to a meditation, you close your eyes. But the concern I have is that you all have a significant trauma CV given the nature of your vocation. And we also know that many people go into the first responder vocation because they've got significant trauma in their past. And we don't check on your way into this profession. Have you got unresolved trauma or were you abused? All of these things are likely for PTSD and first responders or depression or addiction. So we don't check it, and I'm not suggesting that we do, but I think we have an ethical responsibility to say to first responders, hey, listen, if you were sexually abused or abused as a child or had trauma that you never had taken care of, and most people know it's down there bugging them, go get it checked. Go get some therapy because your risk for PTSD in a call or in any moment is much greater and so understanding the risks as a first responder or military and then playing smart that we don't just cross our fingers and hope this call isn't going to do us in. Mm -hmm. And I, I tweeted, I think I sent it to you, John. Um, the best way I can sum up all of it is, you know, we teach first responders how to manage a difficult airway to save a patient's life. But if you teach a first responder how to manage a difficult emotion, we'll save their life. And that's the piece we don't do. And with respect to how to cultivate or where to begin, so I always say don't do a closed eye meditation right away, especially if you know you've got some stuff going on. But rather use your five senses. We have these five special senses. You're everything from the neck up, basically. Your eyes, your ears, your nose. So taste, touch, hearing, sound. Can you just count five things you're looking at? So if you're in a hot call on the way in, can you just... Notice I'm looking at a fridge and a white ceiling and a green tree. Literally, that seems ridiculous, but what you're doing is if you're focusing using your senses and these same senses bring information in that allow us to get stressed, we can use these same senses to bring our awareness to that present moment so that we're not off like, holy moly, I gotta do this and oh my God, I'm really scared. And then we get into this loop of anxiety, but if you can, take a breath and touch, you know, something I gave all my first uh, year students a stone and I'm like, put it in your pocket. And years later, I would go to services to people who've been working now for years and I see them and they pull out their rock that I gave them in week one. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, because I'm like, just every time you touch that rock, ground yourself, like just mm -hmm. where am I? Check in. So when you do scene survey as a first responder, just see if you can come back into the internal milieu of your life. And what's the internal scene survey for you? Where's your mind? Where's your mood? How are you feeling? Just checking in is a really good first step. And if you can just pay attention to the breath, even if it's short and shallow, noticing it means you're not cognitively doing something else with your mind that often gets us into trouble. Ruminating, depressogenic thoughts, anxiety. So that's a quick way of noticing your feet hit the floor as you go into the call or on the way out of a call. Notice the foot hit the floor every, with every step. Or can I say thank you every time I walk and just do that so that cognitively 
I'm distracting my mind from the things that might get me into trouble mm -hmm. or thinking too much about the call. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's an interesting point that you say as well about just even giving thanks just for the small things like that. I think with modern day living, I love that shirt. I love that yeah. shirt. Um, I think with modern day living, you know, everyone expects so much more. And rather than just taking a step back, as you say, and being thankful for where they're at and what they've got, we always think, oh, well, I should be, um, you know, 30, 40 years old. I should be at this stage. I should be doing this sort of thing. Rather than being like, you know what? I've got a roof over my head. I've got a hot meal in my stomach. You know, I've got friends and family around that love me. I'm actually pretty good right now, you know, so basic stuff. Many first responders, I think, uh, uh, get trained by culture mm -hmm. and because they haven't been trained the other way in school to think like, oh my God, life is horrible. Like, why would I be grateful? The stuff I see every day is horrible. And that blocks their capacity to use gratitude. But gratitude is not this hippy dippy thing. We know by science that your brain is naturally tuned into threat detecting. And then you become a first responder and you get extra good at threat detecting, right? You can see around corners, you can plan out a catastrophe, you're always lit up in that sympathetic nervous system. But we don't train everybody, including first responders, to do the positive emotional affect. And when you're busy gratitude, cultivating an attitude of gratitude, the biochemical markers of that emotion are expressed in the body and impact your cells in a new division of science called epigenetics. And so it's not about, oh, just feel happy. I'm not talking about wishful positive thinking. I'm talking about practicing a thought that cultivates a sense of, I'm really grateful. And there's nobody, in my opinion, better positioned than a first responder to practice gratitude because you do see so much horrible stuff that you should walk away from every call, hand on heart, which is a technique, an actual technique in mindfulness, and go, gosh, I am so glad that wasn't me. I am so grateful I have a job. I'm so glad I don't make those bad decisions some other people make. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and again, if you're doing that on the way out of a call, you're not ruminating about the tragedy of the call. And so you offer a bit of space emotionally and around the amygdala to buffer the tragedy. It doesn't mean you're not gonna remember the bad moment or suffer in that moment a bit but it's the antidote or the opposite to the, what we normally naturally do. And that takes work in the brain. Now, I just want to pull around it a little bit, uh, Wendy, for you with regards to you and your, your graduate studies, you looked at, you know, mindfulness and that, and just chat a little bit around your thesis as well. Um, I was really surprised when you first said that you did it at the University of Aberdeen as well, like very close to home here. Although technically me and you should be rivals because I'm, Crosstown at Robert Gordon's University. That's my alma mater. So we shouldn't really be getting on, but this is going great. So we'll put it aside for tonight. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Although, yay, Aberdeen. <laughs> so, you know, regards for getting into mindfulness, you said you started to get into a little bit with teaching it to the paramedic students while you were a professor. Where, where did the, the interest then start to grow? And why did you think, right, I need to go and do a postgraduate uh, um, degree in mindfulness studies? Because, uh, because when I started coordinating, and you know, mental health is a problem globally and getting to be bigger amongst our population, and much of the calls we do are often, you know, if you break the word down, dis-ease. You know, the longer you work in this field, the more you realize 
you know, cardiovascular, all of these things, many of them come from really, you know, spiritually bankrupt people or depression over the years. And that gets expressed in the body mm-hmm. as dis-ease. And so I could see students and I was counseling them. I was the only female faculty. And I'm like, gosh, I, you know, I was leaning into a mindfulness practice through a lot of adversity. I have a very strong military family. I'd lost a cousin in Afghanistan, went through a divorce after 23 years of marriage. My brother died suddenly at 43 related to mental health issues. And so I was struggling and then I started doing mindfulness on my own and I was like, wow, this stuff really works. And so I started going to conferences and reading up and I'm an anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology teacher. And I'm like, why isn't the stuff I'm learning at these conferences in my books? And so I started to bring it in much to, you know, I had a lot of pushback from the male faculty about Wendy, first responder, don't use the word mindfulness, call it mind fit or mind gym, you know, really masculine. I'm like, no, I think they can handle it. And they're not going to be interested in it. And within a year, we offered a tiny little three week thing before their OSCEs, their big practical testing, which stresses them out. The students loved it so much, they asked us to keep it up. And so within two years, we had 70 of our maybe 90 students coming out once a week on their own time voluntarily to meet me and appear and talk about mindfulness, compassion, and resiliency. And I would take pictures and send it back and bring it to faculty meetings and go look at how enthusiastic these students are about this. And they were laying on the floor doing meditations. And one of the biggest moments for me was I had, we had a year one and year two students together And a year one student came in excitedly and said, I got to go to Emerge and there was a VSA and my teacher sent me in to do CPR and the rest of the students were like, wow, you got to do CPR in a real dead person. And I, you know, the enthusiasm turned up because they all want the trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And then the student said, and I walked into the trauma room and it hit me that this was somebody's dad. And I'm like, okay, how'd you feel? And so we unpacked that feeling and the room went quiet. But what happened was everybody started to emotionally simulate, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then we talked about strategies, like not like sitting down in a closed eye meditation or burning sage. There are a thousand ways to become present to this moment and offer compassion to yourself and soften the amygdala. And so My students inspired me. I was like, oh my God, I'm so determined to bring this to the students. And then I got actually offered a position in that Aberdeen program. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it brought me to this point of speaking. And then I became, you know, this plenary speaker at many conferences. And it was really scary bringing it to the first responder community who had never really heard about mindfulness. Um, but now you can't go anywhere without somebody talking about mindfulness in the first responder community, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. Now, obviously, as part of your, your postgraduate degree there, you did your, your thesis as well, and you looked into paramedics and mindfulness within them. What was, what was your biggest findings from that, from your academic work? Um, I don't think there was anything mm-hmm. major. I think every first responder military will identify with you know, my biggest question in the research to my participants was, tell me about your worst trauma. And I was looking to see what were they doing in three major time spaces on the way to a call, 
in a call and after a call. And historically in the military and first responder community, although military is better about pre-deployment um, strategy building, the first responder community not so much yet, but we're really good at CISM, our post-incident, right? Looking at it, that's gotten better. But the research is clear that, you know, it might be too little too late by the time we do a debrief. And CISM, or Critical Incident Stress Management, has been shown recently to not even be necessarily that effective and actually shown to be possibly harmful. And I was like, if we know mindfulness-based techniques is what grounds psychotherapy for people who get into PTSD, why don't we teach them that stuff before they get into trouble? Give them the strategies when they're well so that they understand that, you know, this mental health of ours isn't just gifted to you. Mm -hmm. You've got to cultivate it. Just like we take care of our bodies and you go to the gym you know, mind the, the mental health movement has changed and morphed. We're not where we need to be, but I'm on a mission to say you have a duty to take care of your mental well-being and you need to answer the question, what are you doing to cause your mental health? What are you doing to stay well mentally? Not I keep working out to keep my back from an injury in my, my first responder job. No, no, what specifically do you do? Not drink or, you know, do things that are not healthy. What are you doing? And so I created when I um, left, oh, I didn't finish my, my thought there for the thesis. When calls got personal, it mattered. It changed for first responders, right? But we never teach first responders about, this is really great till you show up and realize, oh my God, that reminds me of my grandmother or oh my God, this is a child and now I have a child and now this call is really difficult when I do a pediatric. Um, or if they felt they weren't given the support from their superintendents or time off to debrief. Lots of normal stuff, but what I really found interesting and how I've always viewed first responders is many first responders don't do well over the career. The statistics, we still don't have a good handle, but let's say 20% of all first responders end up with PTSD, one to 3% for general population. Researchers and everybody goes, oh my God, that's terrible. What's wrong with you guys? But I've always seen first responders and it's like, but that means 80% of you don't get a psychological injury, which means you're highly resilient. Mm -hmm. And the biggest takeaway from my thesis was falling into this model of salutogenesis, which the minute I read Aaron Antonovsky's model, which is the creation of health because your healthcare system like ours is not really a healthcare system. It's a disease care system. And what that subtly teaches us is, well, I don't take drugs for depression. Therefore my mental health is, is fine. I don't take metformin. I've never had a diagnosis of diabetes. Therefore I'm fine, but that's not the best way of defining health. So I want to teach people to define health outside of the pathogenic model and ask, what's your best health? Not by the absence of disease, but how do you see your best potential? Mm -hmm. And so I really want to cultivate that this you, you are resilient, you're vulnerable, yes, but you're highly resilient. And to really cultivate that, just don't expect your mental health to always be there because it's sometimes not even the trauma I found with my participants horrible, horrible calls, but they did well in telling me the call, but almost every single medic I spoke to said, 
here's the horrible call, but you know what really pisses me off? And I didn't even prompt them. And I'm like, what? And they're like, the bullshit call. I'm like, oh, interesting. And what I found was we don't do a good job at selling our professions. It's lights, sirens, trauma. And people think they come in and they're going to be doing these hot calls their whole life. And what they find out is, you know, maybe they're going to do one hot call a week and the rest yeah. is, you know, the bullshit call, the mental health call that we don't talk about, the spiritually corrupt patient who's just lonely and isolated. Um, and so that's super frustrating in our career. So I think we need to change how we sell the brochure to first responders about what the job actually is. Because our program is two years and we spend 95% of that two years teaching our students for 5% of the call volume. Wow. Okay. You know, so we're, we've got to change up how we sell the job and then the curriculum. And everybody talks about we need evidence. Okay, there's enough evidence to suggest this work puts you at risk. Why aren't we teaching proactive resiliency strategies? So in my company, I've developed a 16-hour you know, reflective practice-based science-based proactive program called Reach for Resiliency mm -hmm. um, that uses the three theories I learned to really teach people how their mind works, how emotions work, and then how to navigate trauma and tragedy effectively. Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that then, Wendy, because obviously I take it you're, you've stepped away from your role as a professor now full-time, yeah. and now you've just launched your company, Wealth Management, and this Reach for Resiliency uh, program. Can you just talk to us a little bit more about that, like, um, where did this come about from and, you know, how, why did you feel the need to create this program? So I honestly think it's the only one of its kind globally. Um, and I, I, while I sell lots to first responders and leaders and first responder communities, there's also a version just for the general population. And before I forget there, if you go to my website, there's a free, there's like 25 hours of me for free yeah. um, that gives you the basis of it. But Reach for Resiliency really encapsulates three big theories that I've learned over my life and in my master's, which are the art and science of mindfulness, again, heavy on the neurobiological basis of mindfulness, the model of salutogenesis of Aaron Antonofsky, which frames health as the, not the absence of disease, but the cultivation of potential, and the work of Viktor Frankl. If you've never read Man's Search for Meaning, he is a must read. Um, his work on meaning-centered orientation, which is how do you make sense of nonsense? How do you understand that life can be hard and heavy, but that no matter what the conditions you're brought into in a moment or in your life, nobody can take your attitude away. You get to choose that. And so Aaron Antonofsky was a Holocaust survivor, and he was about 32 when he was taken in as a prisoner. And he was a well-respected neurologist and psycho psychologist at the time. And he writes about this. So it's a difficult read, but his logotherapy, I'm like, I think we need to teach people about how do you cultivate meaning? How do you understand mindfulness? That's not hippy dippy, that you don't have to sit on a mountain and give up three years of meditation, but how can you incorporate strategies in a moment that will change your biology and your psychology? And my belief is, when you show people that much, they'll get to the mat on their own. I just want them to be safe. I don't want them to do meditations right away. And in Reach for Resiliency, the four big pillars are the mindfulness piece, 
gratitude and generosity is the second four hours mm -hmm. because those are powerful uh, builders of mental well-being. Compassion and self-compassion are the third uh, four hours. And then Viktor Frankl's meaning, motivation and purpose is the last. So it's a full, I think, 360 degree view of body, mind and spirit in a way that is based heavy in evidence, based heavy in science that, you know, the first responder loves to know that it's medically based and that they can really take away um, examples right now and go do it without having to lean into a heavy meditation practice. Nice, nice. And I mean, it is a, a fantastic resource. I've been slowly working my way through some of the modules there as well. And the fact that it's for free is just incredible. There's a lot of wealth of information there as well. And I always come back to the point, I think first time we chatted and you talked about it briefly again there, Wendy, of just the whole thing of cultivating that, that mental health and wellness within you sort of thing. And just, just because you've never had to have anything to help support you through a mental episode or anything like that doesn't mean that it's not potentially there on the horizon for you. So it's just keeping yourself you know, fully abreast of that and making sure you're in the best possible state you can be. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think it's a great resource. I'm definitely going to link into our show notes as well. So everyone else can get involved in that and pick up on it. Um, you mentioned about Viktor Frankl there and his, uh, man's search for meaning. We just talk a little bit as well. I always ask all of our guests on the show, Wendy, just for what they're engaging in for their own development, their own continual professional development. So on that, can you just give us a book, a website or an app recommendation that you've found personally useful? your own uh, educational development um, they are in that course too which by the way is also for the loved ones so it's not just for the first mm -hmm. responder but any family member can jump into that course and learn man search for meaning there are two other books by janice landry that are also highlighted in that course she's a canadian author and she was a broadcaster and she has close proximity to the fire service her dad was in the fire and the two books of hers which i think are great for first responders are um, legacy letters and silver linings. And I'm in the book Silver Linings, which is a book about how she interviewed, I think, 17 experts and different people to talk about how they used gratitude to navigate big adversity in life. And so some experts, some are just experiential. But the legacy letters is also super interesting because much of it is based from a first responder community. And I think both of those books, you can take a chapter out and together either as a family, um, do it as a book club even, or amongst your peers, your partner, and talk about what each chapter says. It can kind of as a pull, pull away. If you've got younger family members, there is a, a young adult version of that man's search for meaning because it is a tough read because it's about the, you know, the Holocaust, which is really tough. So there is a young adult's version of that book. So if you're a parent that's concerned about that type of a book for your, I would read it first, but don't read that book if you're in a holy mess um, emotionally, because it is a tough read, small, but transformative. And there isn't a person on this planet that doesn't include Viktor Frankl's book. It'll shift how you see the, the crap that's in your life. It immediately sharpens your gratitude pencil about, whew, okay, my life isn't so bad. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just need a change in perspective because we can get so self-absorbed about our problems. And the great thing about this pandemic, if there is a great thing, 
is that we're all literally dealing with the same issue for the first time in a hundred years, yeah. right? There's not a place on this planet that's not dealing with restrictions and illness and resource allotment and challenges to each community that we know, especially the first responder. That doesn't make your problems go away. It just, you don't feel so alone in the difficulty. The website, um, you could Google any there, you know, listen, the UK is a powerhouse for mindfulness resources. Much of it is Buddhist born, so they're more traditional in the mindfulness than maybe I am. Um, but, you know, Google any mindfulness center, or if you feel like you can benefit from meditation, but again, uh, Tara Brock is a wonderful resource and um, podcast that you can lean into the theory. Uh, Sharon Salzberg is a North American expert on um, self-compassion and, no, sorry, not self-compassion, um, a meta meditation, which is a bit hippy dippy sounding, but it's really about sending, you know, kindness out to the world. And Kristen Neff and Chris Germer for self-compassion. Self-compassion is a weird thing. Most of us have really never been taught that, but the research that's coming out in the last five years, um, even in the first responder community, it's a powerful facilitator for mental health, especially when trauma and tragedy is how do you cultivate friendliness to the self? Because first responders can be super critical because it's a competitive, you know, arena and space. And so super critical about everything, but self-compassion helps to soften that response. And again, it's not about silver lining. It's about when you control the mind and what it's thinking, you control the biology and the rest of the body. That dictates your well-being at the end so you can retire healthy. Nice. Those are some great resources there, Wendy. I'll make sure I link in all those into our show notes as well so people can check them out. And thank you very much for that. Um, obviously, you've dropped a great deal of information for us tonight, Wendy, and it's been really insightful just getting to sit down and chat with you as well. If anyone was wanting to find out a bit more about you or get in touch with you and see the work you're doing, how could they do that? Um, probably try my website first, wealthmanagement.ca. But again, the spelling is W-E-L-L, -L, like wellness, but wealthmanagement.ca, not .com. Um, on Twitter, I am at, at work, no, at workwithheartwm. My academic account on Twitter is at WLund100. Um, and on LinkedIn, wealth management, lowercase. You can find me there. There are lots of published articles also on my LinkedIn, and they're also on that website. But honestly, get to that public health and safety content and conversations course that's free. I just threw it up when COVID happened as a way of helping first responders. It is police, fire, medics, and other experts, including Janice Landry, um, who I don't have any affiliation monetary. I just adore her. Um, and some really awesome people in there. So please start there if you don't know where else to start because it's there, ready to go. And there's no coursework or homework. So you can dip in and out whenever you want. Cool. That was great. Well, thank you very much, Wendy. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit down and speak to me. It's been great. And thank you very much once again. Thank you, John. I'm so glad to be connected to you. And I hope you and all your listeners are safe. And may you all be free of psychological injury for the rest of your career. Thank you very much for that, Wendy. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com. 
and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.